E A L. Responsible eating, responsible eating, responsible eating and living. Hi, everybody. I'm Karen Hart Glass. You're listening to another Ask a Vegan show. It's the 21st of October, 2012, and there's just a lot of fun things going on to talk about tonight. I'm really looking forward to this show. This past week on my It's All About Food show, I interviewed Dr. William Davis. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Wheat Belly. Maybe you've heard of it. We talked about wheat, of course, on the show on Wednesday, and I really didn't have enough time to cover the entire book. And so what I wanted to do during this program is give a little review of some of the things that I question in his book. So on my program on Wednesday, and I encourage you to listen to it, we covered the history of wheat and how wheat has changed over the last 10,000 years and how it has changed genetically. Now, wheat is not considered something that is genetically modified in the term that we understand genetic modification. This means genetic modification or genetically modified organisms, genetically modified food, this means that scientists in a laboratory take a gene with desired characteristics from one living thing and splice it into another living thing. And We've been seeing all kinds of changes in genetic makeup in plants and in animals over thousands of years. We do it with hybridization where two plants are married, so to speak, and their offspring has a combination of the two different plants and is changed genetically. But this is like a, a softer or more natural way to make changes and the the problem with it is for businesses or for companies or for farmers that want to get certain characteristics in their product the hybridization method is slow and genetic modification where scientists can actually put the desired gene with the desired characteristics into whatever it is that they're making this can be faster. And uh, people, of course, are up in arms about genetic modified food, and we'll see if on the California ballot, if Proposition 37 will be approved or not in November. Everybody's excited about that one. I know I am. Uh, but when we talked about wheat, wheat has not been a, a what do I want to say? Wheat has not been genetically modified as we just discussed, where in the lab it has been changed genetically, but it has been seriously hybridized. And some of those hybridization techniques, as Dr. Davis explained it to me on Wednesday, have been quite severe. Some of them, some of the hybridization techniques that came along um, in the I guess about 50 years ago, 
were harsher than the more natural methods of just marrying plants together and, and hoping that their offspring would have desired characteristics. Um, about 50 years ago, we started with chemical and radiation-type techniques that would make changes in the genetic makeup of plants. And then we actually got involved with genetic modification later on. But the current wheat that is being grown today is very, very different than what humans were eating 10,000 years ago. And uh, Dr. Davis, and I'm sure many others believe that this is the reason why we're seeing so many wheat allergies, wheat intolerance, and even celiac disease where people cannot consume wheat without significant discomfort. And for children, it can be very, very devastating because their digestive system cannot absorb nutrients. So there's this dwarf wheat plant that is grown primarily today for most of our wheat, and uh, it seems to be problematic. So there have been changes in some of the proteins in this particular wheat, and humans have a hard time digesting them. So that part of wheat belly I found very interesting. But there were other statements and topics that Dr. Davis covered, and unfortunately we didn't have a chance to talk about them on my show. That's why we're talking about them tonight. He said he has a whole diet, and one of the things that he says, which is why this book is so popular, is that he claims it's a great weight loss diet. As soon as you eliminate the wheat, all of this weight just disappears. Now, I know that when people just do simple changes in their diet, like not eating bread or not eating white flour foods, very often they do see weight loss because these foods are limited in calories and nutrition and I'm sorry, not limited in calories. They're limited in nutrition per calorie. And people tend to put on weight when they're eating more breads and pasta and white flour foods. But I don't believe that people get the weight loss that he's claiming. It's outrageous amounts of weight that he says people have lost on his diet just by not eating wheat. Also, there have been lots of different diets out there in the world. They're very popular because most people aren't happy with their weight and want to lose money. So they get into one diet or another. The thing is, when you're concentrating on what you're eating, so if you're starting a diet, no matter what the diet is, all of a sudden you're really paying attention to what you're eating. So whether it's a good diet or not, very often you'll lose weight in the early stages just because you're paying attention to what you're eating. It's that simple. So I have a feeling that some of the people on the wheat belly diet are experiencing that sort of thing. But here's a few things that really bugged me. Okay, so he talks about soy. And he says that if you can get organic, I'm sorry, he says if you can get soy that isn't genetically modified, that would be okay. But he says that it's virtually impossible to tell what foods have soy that 
has been genetically modified. And I thought that was, it really wasn't a fair thing to say that it's virtually impossible to tell. There's one absolutely certain way you can tell if your soy products or your products that contain soy are not genetically modified. And that's if, that's if your product is certified organic. Certified, certified organic cannot contain genetically modified ingredients. It's that simple. And uh, it kind of irks me when people are talking about health and nutrition and they say things that are confusing or misleading. And I thought that this was. The other thing that I have to underline about soy and genetically modified soy in particular is that most of the genetically modified soy that's grown in this country is used to feed animals, to feed people. So when people are eating beef, chicken, pork, and those animals have been fed soy, they've been fed genetically modified soy, and you get those genetically modified organisms when you eat the animal flesh. And he didn't say anything about that. And yet, this is what I was going to get to, he encourages a diet. It's kind of like a hunter-gatherer's diet. He encourages a diet where you can eat meat and fish and dairy and eggs. And he recommends that you stay away from wheat, of course, and starchy vegetables and whole grains. He's really anti-whole grains and grains in general, and certainly junk food and sugar. Um, but if you're concerned about getting genetically modified organisms in your body, you don't want to eat most meat because that those animals have been fed genetically modified soy. All right, let's move on. Another thing that he does not recommend on his diet is beans, legumes. He says they should be limited. You shouldn't eat as many as you want. And my understanding, especially from reading Eat to Live and other articles from Dr. Joel Furman, beans, legumes, are on his list of unlimited. You can eat as many beans as you want until you're sated. And the thing about beans is that they are very satisfying. They've got a lot of fiber in them, and they fill you up. And they do have carbohydrates in them, and they also have protein. And they're very, very nutritious. They're very satisfying, and they have a lot of great flavor. And you can serve them up in so many different ways. So I was frustrated to see that he does not encourage people to eat legumes on his diet. And then there was... Well, in general, it was rather confusing, his discussion about carbohydrates, and I think he ultimately made it clear what he was talking about, but as you read the book, if you're not on top of things when it comes to nutrition, I could see how people could really get muddled. The thing about carbohydrates is we need to eat carbohydrates, but the carbohydrates we eat should be from whole or minimally processed plant foods. Most people have given carbohydrates a bad name because they're eating highly processed, refined carbohydrates, and these are not healthy. And it's important to know the difference. One of the things that Dr. Davis was emphasizing in his book is that many 
health advocates promote whole grains. And he doesn't think that whole grains are very nutritious. And it's interesting because in Dr. Joel Furman's diet, he limits the amount of whole grains people should eat. And he explains that if you're going for a nutrient-dense diet for optimal health and longevity, you want to get the most bang out of every calorie. You want to get as most get as most nutrition as you can out of every calorie. And you do that from dark leafy green vegetables, cruciferous vegetables, and uh, other non-starchy vegetables and fruits. But whole grains don't rate as high as those other plant foods. So that's why Furman limits them, and Dr. Davis doesn't think we should be eating them either, or at least not very much. All right. And then... He mentions a number of times throughout the book, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor. Now, this is something that we need, and it does a number of things in our bodies. But when we have too much, it's something that has been shown to correlate with breast cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer. Uh, They found that I think it was um, women with breast cancer had higher levels of IGF-1 than normal. So there's some link attributed to too much IGF-1. Well, where do we get this from? We get IGF-1 from certain foods like animal products, and we get it from milk. We get a lot of it from milk when the milk when the cow has been treated with the genetically modified recumbent both growth RGBH recumbent growth oh why am I not getting this right <laughs> anyway it's a milk hormone and it's given to most cows in the United States, and it makes them make a lot more milk. And as a result, there's more IGF-1 in the milk, which we don't need. And in Dr. Davis's book, he talks about IGF-1, and he'll talk about how it's a good thing on one page because... Uh, Here's what he says. Animal protein exerts a bone-strengthening effect through stimulation of the hormone insulin-like growth factor IGF-1, which triggers bone growth and mineralization. The net effect of proteins from animal sources, despite their acid-generating properties, is that of increasing bone health. You know, there's been this discussion that animal protein is so acidic that in order to neutralize the acidity Our bodies take calcium from the blood, and if there's not enough calcium, it goes to the bones, depleting the calcium, weakening the bones in order to neutralize the acidity from digesting the animal protein, and that calcium gets washed out in the urine. And uh, there are some studies that show that this is true, and others say that it's not exactly what happens. But what he's saying is that animal protein actually works to strengthen bones. Okay, maybe yes, maybe no. But later on, he talks about how IGF-1 also stimulates 
tissue growth in the dermis, the layer of the skin just beneath the surface, as well as stimulating the production of sebum, the oily protective film produced by the sebaceous gland. Overproduction of sebum along with skin tissue growth leads to characteristic upward growing reddened pimple. This means that IGF-1 is causing skin problems, acne, things like that. And certainly I know that IGF-1 is linked to cancer. And this is one of the reasons why we want to limit or reduce the amount of animal products that we eat. So I don't really understand why he was promoting this crazy diet of meat, fish, milk, eggs, but the only thing that's a problem is wheat. Interesting. And then the last thing, he certainly promotes eating eggs. And eggs have been in the news recently. It was in February where the Arteriosclerosis Journal talked about how regular consumption of egg yolk should be avoided by persons at risk of cardiovascular disease. And that the egg yolk affects the carotid plaque. Okay, basically it's saying we shouldn't be eating eggs, or certainly not a lot of them, especially if we're at risk of cardiovascular disease. Animal products are not healthy food. It's really pretty simple. And it's going to take a while before people get it. I think slowly more and more people are getting it. They're realizing how good they feel when they're eating a plant-based diet and when they're reducing and eliminating animal products. And it's happening more and more to the point where there are actually some media outlets that are saying that vegetarian and vegan lifestyles are mainstream. We've waited a long time for this. I talked about how recently in LA Weekly they said that there are, this is the year of vegan cookbooks and that vegan is mainstream in Los Angeles. Well, now in Prevention Magazine in October 2012, they write that if you're a prevention reader and if you're reading this, well, then you are. You know we've always been fans of vegetarian eating. Now we're taking the commitment to healthy eating one step further by making every Monday a meatless one. Check out our reasons for nixing the meat and see how easy we're making it for you to join us. Bring on the veggies. It's easy. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, this is great. So the vegetarian diet is really getting out there. And the Meatless Monday thing is something that's quite popular and growing. I know that Paul McCartney is behind it, and he and his daughters put out a Meatless Monday cookbook. I don't think it's vegan, but it's vegetarian. And guess what? This is why I wanted to bring this up, because people are getting nervous and uncomfortable about this. This is good. So I'm looking at an article from Beef Daily. 
It's a daily blog produced by rancher Amanda Radke, one of the U.S. beef industry's top social media ag vocates. Agokits. Isn't that isn't that interesting? She's a fifth generation rancher from South Dakota. And she has a degree in agriculture. Very nice. Uh, this beefmagazine.com is they say that they are I want to see exactly what they say. They are the nation's leading cattle publication. We, everyone needs one of those. Annually publishes 12 monthly issues for America's top cow-calf operators, stalker growers, cattle feeders, veterinarians, nutritionists, and allied industries covering production, animal health, nutrition, finance, and marketing issues. Okay. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm always uh, interested in what these publications have to say. And... The latest article that came out actually today is six reasons why I eat meat every day Mondays too. And this Amanda Radke was talking about, number one, that even though a small portion of the U.S. population follows a vegetarian or vegan lifestyle, the ideas are now mainstream. She says that the ideas are now mainstream. This is huge. And obviously, it's not making her happy or any of the cattle operators or ranchers out there that are growing animals to feed people because that's their business. That's how they make money, and they're getting nervous. So she came up with six reasons to do meatless... I'm sorry... She talks about the Prevention Magazine that has six reasons to do meatless Mondays and saying that meat is easy, eco-friendly, life-saving, affordable, kind, and makes you feel sexy. Well, yeah, I get that. Well, she said, no, 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 no. She's got six reasons to include meat in your diet, and that's what I want to go over because this is really hysterical. And the thing is, people think that I don't know, if you write something and you print it, that makes it uh, credible? Everything that she put here is nonsense. Uh, But people are going to find it, and if they want to believe that beef is healthy, um, they'll quote an article like this. Okay, let's go through it. So number one, it's healthy. There are 29 lean cuts of beef according to USDA standards. Beef provides nutrients like zinc, iron, protein, and B vitamins, and half of the fat found in beef is monounsaturated, the same heart-healthy fats found in olive oil. I will tell you that beef is not a healthy food. We know that beef especially contributes to cardiovascular disease and a whole host of chronic illnesses. It doesn't contain any fiber. Of course, it doesn't have any phytonutrients because you can only find phytonutrients and fiber in what kind of food, everyone? Plant food. And there's more and more evidence that People on vegetarian and vegan diets live longer than meat eaters. 
and the quality of life is better. It's not healthy eating beef. Number two, it's easy using recipes from beefitswhatsfordinner.com. Beef is an easy addition to a well-balanced meal. Simply fire up the grill or turn on the slow cooker and you've got a healthy, simple meal that stars meat. Now, I could replace beef and meat with lots of words like tofu or portobello mushroom or tempeh or seitan or just any vegetable, really, and there are so many recipes today, you have so much more variety if you're going with plant foods instead of meat, and you're getting fiber, you're getting phytonutrients, you're getting all kinds of wonderful vitamins and minerals and nutrition, things we haven't even discovered yet, without any of the cholesterol, without any of the saturated fat, without any of the things that are going to coat your arteries and make you sick. Okay, number three, she says it's environmentally friendly. Cattle graze on land that is too steep, hilly, or rocky for farming. Cattle aerate the soil and eat brush, which is good for wildfire management. Check out our Earth Day page to find out more reasons why beef production is good for the planet. Okay, what is everyone talking about these days? We're all talking about how animal agriculture, factory farming of animals for food is horrific for the environment. Horrific. Most animals, most cattle, for example, are confined in these spaces. We're not even talking about land that's too steep, hilly, or rocky. They're if you've ever been to Auschwitz, it's just miles and miles of flat mud where these animals are walking around and confined until they're slaughtered. It's uh, pretty well known if you follow um, Mike Houdon, I think his name is. He is very much into eliminating the welfare land management, giving cattle ranchers the opportunity to graze their cattle for next to nothing on public lands. And this damages the land. When the cattle come through and they eat and they move on, that land is practically useless. It is not good for the environment to have cattle, and it's certainly not good to have the number of cattle we are growing today. She just makes it up, and she prints it, and people say, oh, beef is environmentally friendly. Number four, it's affordable. She says, calorie for calorie, beef is more nutrient-dense than vegetarian protein options like peanut butter, tofu, or beans. You get more nutritional bang for your buck by choosing healthy, lean animal proteins. Okay, now, what's amusing here? The term nutrient-dense, I believe it was the vegans that came up with that term and started promoting it because plant foods, especially the dark leafy green vegetables, are more nutrient-dense than anything. And per calorie, you can get the same or more protein in broccoli than you can in beef. 
So I'm not exactly sure what she's talking about here, but again, it's all about printing it and making it truth whether it is or not. And, you know, she didn't mention here green vegetables. She mentioned peanut butter, tofu, or beans. But, you know, another thing is that when you're eating whole or minimally processed plant foods, without even thinking about it, if you're not eating junk food, you will get the protein that you need without even paying attention or worrying, am I getting enough protein? Am I eating the protein-rich foods? If you're eating a variety of fruits and vegetables, it's easy to do. The thing is, when people are eating more animal foods, they're getting too much protein. So you want to get your nutrition from vegetable sources because you're going to get them in the balance that humans need to thrive. What else? So this is, oh God, I don't know which one is the best. They're all really ridiculous. But number five, are you ready for this one? Take a deep breath. Okay, here we go. It's kind meat in your diet. It's kind. Cattlemen care about their livestock. It makes good business sense and it's the right thing to do. Respectfully harvesting these animals to nourish people is a part of the cycle of life and something that ranchers take very seriously. Harvesting these animals? Where do you get these terms? Harvesting these animals? Let's say what it is. Slaughter cutting their throats, letting them bleed to death, stunning them with stun guns that don't work, hanging them by their leg as they smell the smell of death and hear the screams of their fellow animals. There's nothing kind about slaughter. There's nothing kind about butchering. And that's just the end. We're not even talking about what these animals have to endure from birth, first being ripped away from their mothers and then being fed food that they don't naturally eat that makes them sick and isn't good for them. It's just a nightmare from birth to death. There's nothing kind about it. And if you look at some of these undercover videos from Mercy for Animals, I don't know how people can say that cattlemen care about their livestock because the things that you see in these videos is horrific where these, where the people, I think the people are kind of nutty themselves because there's something deep down in all of us that knows it's wrong to do this. And so they, they go a little crazy and they take it out, unfortunately, on the animals who are already being treated horribly and they hit them and kick them and beat them and drag them. <sighs> It's, it's so unbelievable that this goes on. It's kind. Okay, the last one on this lovely little ridiculous list from the beefmagazine.com is it will make you feel sexy. Without protein as the center of my diet, I feel depleted of energy. Sure, vegetables and fruits are great, but without protein power, I'm not strong. And being strong is sexy. Be inspired by all the Team Beef members who are out leading busy, active lives, competing in triathlons, marathons, and more. All right, are you laughing? I am. 
So there's that whole protein issue. And as I just mentioned before, without even thinking about it, if you're eating whole, minimally processed fruits and vegetables, you're going to get all the protein you need. We don't have to worry about protein. It's really only the people that are eating entirely junk food or who are not eating very much at all because they're impoverished and don't have access to food. Those are the people who have problems with protein. But most of us, without even thinking, we get enough protein. All plant foods contain complete protein. All of them, complete protein. But the funniest part for me, I think, is the part about feeling sexy. So what do we know? We know that men... What is it? I think about half the men who turn 40 are impotent or have trouble... Uh, ejaculating, have trouble uh, with their sex organ. And it's because they have a, a carotid artery plaque from eating animal products and from junk food, and they can't get it up. We know this is true because Viagra and Cialis are very, very popular drugs today. How can you feel sexy if you're tools aren't working properly. And we know that a healthy plant-based diet is something that not only keeps you strong, but keeps all of your organs working very, very well to very late age. And that's sexy. Amusing, no? I thought it was. Okay, let's turn the page. I bottom line is meatless Mondays is a nice idea. Everyone should do it. There's uh if you want to eat some animal food in your life, less is better than more. So getting this trendy meatless Monday thing is a good thing. It's a good thing. And then try and make it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or something like that. I went to an event last night, uh, a couple of nights ago, at NYU. Perhaps you've heard of Marion Nessel. She's a professor at NYU. I've interviewed her on my It's All About Food show several times. She has a website, foodpolitics.com, and she's one of the leading experts in food politics and everything that is associated with food and government regulation and policy. She gave a really great lecture, and I pretty much had heard everything she had talked about because I follow her blog pretty religiously. But it was really great to hear her talk, have it all packaged up. There's nothing like um, the experience of being in a room where something is happening live, either live theater or live music, and even a live presentation. I try to make this as live as I possibly can, but you know, it sure would be nice to be face-to-face with all of you sometime. I, so I, I really enjoyed listening to the lecture with Marion Nissel, and one of the things that she highlighted, which, which was really important, 
well, a number of things actually, but the thing that she was saying is so many things have happened in the last uh, 30, 40 years that have changed what is the default option in restaurants, in schools, in soda sizes, in portion sizes. The default today has changed significantly to larger, bigger portions and health, unhealthier, junkier foods. And she said people naturally choose the default. More and more people choose the default. And her point was, why not make the default the healthy option? And if people want to access the junkier options, they can. But our government, our schools, parents, everyone should be supporting a healthier default. So what are we talking about in terms of default? Well, there's all this discussion going on, as you know, about in New York, for example, limiting the size of sodas. Mayor Bloomberg wants to limit the size for a person to be able to purchase in restaurants and fast food establishments a 16-ounce soda, not larger. And uh, Mary Nessel was talking about how no matter what the size, people go for the default. So if the featured size is eight ounces, people go for that. If the featured size is 32 ounces, they'll go for that. And they don't realize the calorie difference between the two. There's a lot of people out there screaming about free choice and how they want to have their free choice. And they don't understand this concept of what's being marketed and what's being, uh, assisted by government policy in order to make what is the default product an unhealthy product. It needs to be the healthy product. The other thing that was interesting about her talk was she showed some data that showed that all of the changes that happened for the worse with regard to food and nutrition and weight happened back in 1980 when Ronald Reagan started to deregulate. And as a result, farmers were not paid not to grow food and to let some of their fields rest. Instead, they started to grow more on all of their property, and and we started to have a tremendous food surplus. Food became really cheap, and uh, more, there's just food everywhere. Portions get bigger, and there's just more affordable food for most people, and people eat more. And you see this trend go up from around 1980. It's really fascinating, and that's why we need the right regulation in order to Uh, help people make the right choices. And certainly another thing that she kept saying over and over, and I really agree with this, and that is that we should not be marketing to children. Anything, food, toys, children shouldn't be marketed to, period. Yeah, so if you have an opportunity, definitely check out her blog. It's really uh, a lot of very, very useful information. 
Okay, so the last thing I wanted to talk about is all the wonderful recipes we are offering. This week we put out a few things. I think I mentioned last week or the week before that I started making yogurt and I was inspired by Miyoko Schinner's Artisan Vegan Cheese book. And the yogurt that I made from her book was with simple soy milk, soy and water, and some cashews. And the cashews help to thicken the soy milk and make it richer and creamier. It made a phenomenal yogurt. And then from that, we made a mozzarella cheese according to her recipe and uh, posted our pizza with the mozzarella cheese. Incredible. Such a great taste. was really excited. And I made more yogurt. The, the thing about making yogurt is you always want to save three tablespoons, two or three tablespoons from your original batch from your, and then you can make more. And you always need to save a little in order to have the probiotics in that yogurt to grow in the next batch. I made two batches this week. One, a duplicate of the time before with soy milk and cashews. And then I wanted to try soy milk with almonds. And they're slightly different. Both are great. I think the next time I'm going to make all almonds. And uh, it's really, really fun. And, and now I have all this wonderful, very creamy, plain vegan yogurt with all those wonderful probiotics in them. And I've been doing things with them. So to start with, very, very simple, fresh, wonderful dish, oranges with mint. And you can top a little yogurt on that. That's a great breakfast or a dessert. It's amazing how the combination of oranges and mint is just spectacular. And it's obviously a very, very simple thing, but you can serve that as a dessert or a fruit salad. It, it goes for so many things, and it's just really lovely. Um, the other thing, oh yeah, is we're in our annual fun drive time. So we've decided October is our month for our real appeal, our fundraiser where we try and bring in a good chunk of cash so that we're set for a while so we can do the things that we like to do here at Responsible Eating and Living for you. And we are having a real virtual pancake breakfast fundraiser. And we came up with this wonderful sourdough cornmeal pancake recipe and in it is the yogurt that I've been talking about. It's a very simple recipe. It's gluten-free. The pancakes are phenomenal. And if you donate to Responsible Eating and Living or you just read our pitch on the website, you can link to the sourdough cornmeal pancake recipe and join us all during the month of October with a real virtual pancake breakfast fundraiser. Great. Uh, a f uh, one more recipe that we posted this week, you should check it out, is the minestrone. Just a wonderful, rich vegetable soup. 
we were just feeling a little more Italian this week with pizza and mozzarella and minestrone. Really, really good. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to Ask a Vegan. That wraps it up for this week. And if you have comments, questions, things you need to know about plant food, send me an email, please, at info at realmeals.org. Thank Thank you, and have a great, delicious week. R-E-A-L Responsible eating, responsible eating, responsible eating and living. R-E-A-L, real's good for the planet, the inhabitants who need some advice on the right thing to do. When it comes to good health, we need facts that are true. To choose what to eat and save the planet too. That's responsible eating and living. Oh, you'll find the real tools for you. Real.